Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, today is actually the last week we'll be in the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks. We're going to be starting next week a, a small Christmas series. Now, that series is called Greater. Jeremy, go ahead and put that up. We'll begin that next week. It's a Christmas series looking at Jesus Christ and a few select passages in the, the book of Hebrews. I'll be teaching the first message in that series and some of the tail end messages in that series. In the middle, what we'll be doing is having some of our pastoral staff and our teaching team rotating in for those messages like we did during the summer. And we'll also be crossing campuses and covering one another across both campuses. So that'll be a great way that the pastors get a little break. And we also get an extra special blessing by being able to see some of the other pa pastors on staff and enjoy their teaching. But today we're still in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking at a topic that every single one of us actually has a lot of interest in. The topic is, how can we be great? How can we be a success in life? How can we do things that are actually important in our life? I mean, every single one of us wants to be great, and I think we should want to be great. I mean, none of us should want to be a failure. But as we look at our text this morning, we're going to find there are actually two paths to greatness. And we have to choose which way we want to go there. So I'm going to ask you to take out your copy of God's Word. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. I don't care if you're using an electronic copy or a paper copy or the Bible in front of you in the pews. That's fine. While you are turning to that passage, let me give you a few minutes to do that. I'm going to give you a little bit of background that you'll need for the study we're going to do this morning. The background for what we're going to study in Mark chapter 10 actually begins all the way back in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Let me remind you what was happening in that chapter. Jesus was actually in Galilee at the time. He was in Capernaum at the time, which was sort of his home base of operations in that part of the world. He was in a house, most likely in Peter's house, and he said to them, well, what were you guys talking about on the road on the way back? Remember at that time, Jesus had come back from Mount Hermon where he was transfigured and they were talking about things on the road and uh, the disciples didn't tell him what they were talking about. They kept it really quiet because the Bible tells us they were talking about which one of them was the greatest, which one of them was the most successful, which one of them was the most important. But Jesus, because he knows the hearts of everyone, he knew that, so he just launched into a, a lesson on how to be first in God's kingdom. He said, how do you be first? It's to be a servant of everyone. But the problem is, the disciples weren't doing a really good job of listening. I mean, that went like water off a duck's back. It did not penetrate them whatsoever. In fact, what we find is they were continuing to talk about which one of them is the all-time greatest. Which one of them is the best, most successful apostle of them all? And so Jesus, here we are, is going to have to give them another lesson on that. So here we are a few weeks later in Jesus' life, just another chapter in, and Jesus is going to have to give them a lesson on pride and humility and greatness. And you'd hope after the second time Jesus talks about this, they would catch on. But to tell you the honest truth, 
they still don't get it. They won't take this to heart. During the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus has to give them this lesson again. Even in the upper room, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, guess what they're still talking about? Which one of them is the greatest? I think it's sort of funny because Jesus is going to say in that time, he says, the way that you are going to be known in this world is, as Christians, you'll be known for your love for one another. <laughs> well, trust me, at this point, they are a long way from that. The way that the Christians, the, these early Christians, the apostles are known for one another is that they're willing to step on and step over one another, not to love one another. So they have some maturity and development to do. Hopefully you found Mark chapter 10, verse 32 in your Bible. So stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read from verse 32 all the way through verse 45. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Oh, we are able. And Jesus said to, him, to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You may be seated. As this text unfolds in front of us, you can see it sort of gives us two paths, two paths to what greatness is. One is the path of greatness through self-denial, and the other is the path of greatness through what is known as self-promotion. The path of greatness through self-denial is modeled by Jesus. The path of greatness through self-promotion is modeled by James and John. 
the path of greatness through self-denial is the way greatness is found in the kingdom of God. The path of greatness through self-promotion is the way greatness is found in the kingdom of this world, the everyday world that we live in. The path of self-promotion is the way that Satan does things. The path of self-denial is the way that God does things. In essence, today each one of us will need to make a choice. We should seek greatness, not failure. But we have to choose what kind of greatness we will seek. Greatness in this world, which will be about promoting ourselves, or greatness in God's eyes, in God's kingdom, which will be about denying ourselves in this life for Christ. So let's go ahead and jump into our text. First thing, number one, Jesus modeled greatness by self-denial. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. The first thing we see is they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. And by the way, they were literally going up to Jerusalem, not just figuratively going up to Jerusalem. And you can see that when you look at a map. Uh, Jeremy, could you throw that map up there again? We've been using this map for a while and referencing it. We saw that Jesus was recently in some of the previous episodes in Perea. He's taking that purple road right on the bottom there called the Jericho Road that goes from the area of Perea to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jericho, you can sort of tell on the map topographically that is a low point. From Jericho to Jerusalem, it is a 3,500-foot climb in only 20 miles because Jerusalem is on top of a mountain which is why they say they are literally going up to Jerusalem. There is no other way to get to Jerusalem other than going up. If you want to picture what this is like, you know when you go to Jackson to get on the highway, right before we're getting on the highway, you know what that steep hill is like? Anybody remember that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, we've all done that, right? Well, picture that for about 20 miles. That's what Jesus and the disciples are about ready to climb as they go up to Jerusalem. The other thing I want you to notice here is that it says Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. Very important. He's not walking with them. He is not lagging behind them. He is leading the way. While if you look at the rest of the disciples, they're actually lagging behind at this point. They are fearful at this point. They're not excited you wonder, why would the other disciples be lagging behind? And here's what I think. They've recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They've recognized there's a lot of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and also going to probably lead to conflict between Jesus and the Romans. They know things are going to go down. And they picture probably in their mind at this point a military kingdom. They picture something like an Old Testament conquering. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be a lot of body bags. They're not real excited about what is going to take place. That's why I think they are lagging behind. Uh, but Jesus is leading the way. 
And Jesus tells them, by the way, what's going to happen in Jerusalem is not the fight for an earthly, military kind of kingdom that they're expecting. Jesus tells them that it's going to be a different kind of a fight. It's going to be a fight where he dies. Ultimately, he dies for us. And Jesus, once again, predicts his death in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice, it's a death with details. Very important for us to see. This is actually the third time that Jesus has given specific details about what is going to happen to him. The first time he talked about what would happen to him in Jerusalem was in Mark chapter 8. Immediately after Peter recognized Jesus as the Christ, Jesus reframed for Peter what kind of Christ he actually was. In your notes, I put that down. And Jesus said this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and three days rise again. Once again, it was a death with all kinds of details. Jesus says, let me tell you what is about to happen to me. I know exactly how it's going to unfold. In Mark chapter 9, the same thing. He predicts his death with details. And as he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And now we come to this passage in Mark chapter 10. It's the third time Jesus predicts his death. And he gives even more details. Understand he knows exactly what's going to happen to him. And saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Before Jesus has even gotten there, he knows that he'll be condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. He knows that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He knows that they will mock him, spit on him. He knows that he will be flogged in the Roman praetorium before it even takes place. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he is going to die and he is going to rise after three days. Now, here's what is amazing to me. Jesus knows that he's going to Jerusalem to die for us. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to become sin for us. He knows the horrors of the cross that await him. But he's leading the way into it. You know why he's leading the way? Because he's modeling greatness by self-denial. He's going to the cross to die for your sin, and to die for my sin. He's not going to the cross because it's fun for him. He's going to the cross to deny his very life for you and for me. That is what true greatness looks like. That is why Jesus leads the way. Now, some people will say, well, how does Jesus know all the details of what's about ready to take place in Jerusalem? That's a couple of things. 
I have this on the second page of your outlines. I think it's simply because, first of all, Jesus knew his Bible. If you have the Old Testament, which is what Jesus had at this point, the Old Testament has all kinds of specific, detailed prophecy about what would happen to the Messiah when he went into Jerusalem. Jesus had that Bible. Jesus read that Bible, and he knew it applied specifically to him. So he was not in the dark about the details of what was about to unfold. For instance, Jesus knew from Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver because it was prophetically spoken that way. He knew from Psalm 34, verse 20, that none of his bones would be broken. He knew from Psalm 22, verse 18, that his clothes would be gambled for. He knew from Psalm 69, verse 29, that while on the cross, he would be given sour wine to drink, because that was prophetically described. He knew from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that a spear would pierce his side. But he also knew from Psalm 16 that he would rise from the dead. He also knew from Psalm 110 that he would ascend right back to the Father's right hand. He knew from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 the gory details of what would happen to him on the cross and before the cross. He knew that he would become sin. He knew that God the Father, who had been in an unbroken relationship with him, would turn his back on him for the first time ever. He knew he would absorb God the Father's wrath for your sin and for my sin. He understood the horror of what was in front of him. But he led the way into it because he was denying himself out of love for you and for me. That's greatness. That's what true greatness looks like. He also knew what would happen to him because he was God. You know, as God, you sort of know things a lot of other people don't. We can see that in the text. Mark chapter 2, remember when uh, they were at Peter's house and they let the paralytic down through the roof and Jesus said, I forgive your sins. But then it says, but he knew what they were thinking. He knew the people's hearts and their thoughts at that time. Or do you remember Mark chapter or Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus told Peter to go fishing? And when you go fishing, if you put your line in right now, you'll catch a fish and it'll have some money in its mouth. And the fish that you catch, will be, you can use that money to pay your taxes, Peter. So he knew exactly where a certain fish would be at a certain time with, and what was in that very fish's mouth. So obviously Jesus knew the future. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? He had never met her before, but he knew her complete sexual history. Remember the triumphal entry? He told his apostles to go ahead of him, and they told them where they could find a colt that had never been ridden before. The point is that Jesus knows the future. So he knew exactly what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem in full and gory detail. He did not go into Jerusalem blindly. His eyes were opened from the Bible's prophecy and from his knowledge as God. But once again, he went there leading the way 
to deny himself to die for you and for me. That is what greatness by self-denial looks like. It's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. So while Jesus is modeling greatness through self-denial, right after this we run into James and John. And they are going in the exact opposite direction, trying to model greatness in an earthly way by self-promotion. Let's look what it says. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. In the scriptures, James and John have a nickname. They're known as the Sons of Thunder. Uh, that's not because they're a member of an ancient motorcycle gang. That's simply because they are known for their brash, bold personalities. And what we find here is that these guys were actually in the inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were sort of the closest three with Jesus. And they're figuring that as James and John, they've had extra relational time with Jesus. They're typically a little closer than most people are with Jesus. They were on Mount Hermon where they saw the transfiguration of Jesus, where he shone like the sun and his clothing flashed white like lightning. They're feeling that they're pretty special. They're feeling they're better than others. And they're thinking, maybe we should just be bold. Maybe we should just be brash. We should ask for some special privileges beyond the rest. We'll just cut Peter out. That's what they're thinking at this point. Now, before we get into their requests, it's, there's a very interesting backstory that I think you'll enjoy at this point. The backstory is not found in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually found in the Gospel of Matthew in the parallel passage that tells us the exact same incident and how it unfolded and took place. But in Matthew, it tells us that when James and John came to Jesus to make this request, guess who they brought with them? Anybody know? Their mother. So much for the tough sons of thunder. When they have to bring mom along, look what it says here. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So we start to wonder here. These big tough guys, the fishermen guys, why would they be so wimpy? Why would they need mom along with them to make this special request? The answer is not because of um, who mom innately is, but the relationship that mom innately has. Let me give you some interesting details. As you look at the crucifixion in the Gospels, you always find there are three women that are at the cross. The one is Mary, which is Jesus' mother. The other is Mary Magdalene, which is another woman. And the third woman goes by a number of different names. In Matthew, she is called the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In other words, James and John's mother. In Mark, her name is given. She is just called Salome. That's her name. And then when you go to John, what you find is she is given the title of the sister of Jesus' mother. So what we find 
is their mother and Jesus' mother are sisters. They are cousins of Jesus. Their mother is Jesus' aunt. So what we have is we're going to make a big request of Jesus. In fact, we're not even telling Jesus what it is at this point. It's such a big, out-of-line request. But we're going to apply some family pressure. We're going to bring mom along. And so Jesus is not going to just have to say no to us. She'd have to, he's going to have to say no to his aunt. And you know you can't do that. By the way, uh, their mother is just like any other mother. She is trying to live her life through her children. That's why she's going along for the ride here. I could see her minivan. It, the minivan has a bumper sticker in the back of it, and the bumper sticker doesn't say, my sons are Capernaum High School honor students. Nope, her bumper sticker says, my sons are apostles of Jesus. That's what's on the back of her minivan. And because she's trying to live her life through her children. So they're going to attempt to pressure Jesus into answering the request favorably by bringing their mother along. And another thing, by the way, you notice is strange about this right up front, is they don't make the request. At least not at first. They just say to him, we want you to give whatever we ask. And if you're a parent, you know your children do that, right? Dad, just say yes. What's, what do you want? Just say yes. When they're saying that, you know it's not something you should ever say yes to. That's the exact same thing that these guys are doing. Just say yes, Jesus. Give us a blank check and let us loosen the mall. Give us your credit card and let us on Amazon for about 30 minutes. It'll be okay. Trust me. And Jesus, obviously, is far too smart for that. He says, okay, guys, what do you want? And that's how it unfolds. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, here's our request. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Now think about this. This is really bold. This is really brash. What about poor Peter? Where is he going to sit? Oh, sorry, Peter. We asked before you did. We claimed it. Sort of like when you're going in a car. I have front seat. So you have to have back seat. They've been with Jesus for three years. He's been consistently teaching them about humility and about putting other people first. But what are they doing? They're continuing to still argue about who is the greatest. And they have the gall to ask Jesus to have the best seats in the house. We want to be number one and number two in your kingdom. Obviously, you can tell they're still thinking militarily. They're still thinking about Jesus is going to conquer things in Jerusalem, and they just want to make sure they're sitting at his left and right in Jerusalem after he conquers things. But remember what's been going on. Jesus has told them how many times that he's going to die in Jerusalem? Three times. How well are they listening? They're dense as a rock at this point. Think about how this would make Peter feel. Think about how this would make other people feel by saying, guess what? We're in first place because we asked for it first. You know what it reminds me of? Did you guys ever have this take place at college? We used to order a pizza. 
And the way it would work out is there were usually sort of an odd number of pieces. And so there was always two pieces left or one piece left. And you didn't know who was going to get that last piece of pizza. But somebody would be brash and bold and they would lick it. You ever have that happen? They would lick the piece while everybody else is eating. Go, you can't have it. I claimed it before you did. That's what James and John are doing. They're the pizza lickers. They're claiming the position before anybody else does. That's what's going on. And so how does Jesus respond? We hear you. We hear you, Houston. Okay, the joke didn't work. All right, back to the text. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, Oh, we are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, do you really want to know what you're asking for? Do you think you can handle that position? That position to sit at my left and my right, it's for those who suffer greatly for the kingdom, like I am about to suffer for the kingdom. You think you can handle that? Don't you like it? Oh, sure, we've got it completely under control, Jesus. Brash, arrogant, overconfident. So Jesus says, okay, you'll drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You'll be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with. But those positions, it's up to my Father. Now, the cup and the baptism, what is he talking about? Those are simply metaphors he is using for suffering. Drinking a cup of suffering. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he prays to the Father before the, uh, the crucifixion begins to unfold, what does he say? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. You see the cup being used there as sort of a metaphor for suffering? In baptism here, it's not being used in the sense of Christian baptism. It is being used in the sense of plunged, submersed, completely drowned he says, I am about ready to be plunged, submerged, completely drowned in suffering. You think you can handle that? And they're like, oh, yeah, no problem. We've got it under control. Well, let me just jump outside of the narrative for a brief moment. How does it work out for James and John? Interesting little background for them. James actually becomes the first Christian martyr. You can read about his death in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Herod Agrippa I kills him by chopping his head off around 40 A.D. John is actually the last to die. He is boiled in oil, at least not, it doesn't say that in the scriptures, but Christian history tells us that they attempted to kill him by boiling, in oil, boiling him in oil, though he lived through it. Eventually exiled to the island of Patmos, which was sort of a slave prison colony, and then eventually died, as far as we know, in Ephesus. So you have sort of like the first disciple to die and the last disciple to die between James and John. Now the question is, will they be at his left and his right in his kingdom? 
And to tell you the truth, I don't know. The only one who knows is God the Father, who will grant those positions. But by the way, those positions are not taken by just asking for them. Those positions are given based on how you suffer for the kingdom. Those who suffer greatly like Christ will be the ones who are on his left and on his right. Now what about the other ten disciples? How do they react when they finally find out about James and John sort of underhandedly trying to sneak these positions away from them? And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant, it says, with James and John. James and John's underhanded self-promotion, it gets them angry, but it's interesting why it gets them angry. It doesn't get them angry because they're saying, how could you dare do this in our presence? They're angry because they didn't think of it first. Remember back in Mark chapter 9, what were all the disciples doing? They're all arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Not just James and John. James and John were only the ones who were bold enough to ask for first and second place. But they all want first and second place. So, at this point, we've seen two paths to greatness. Two paths. Jesus, modeling the path of greatness through self-denial, leading the way to his own horrific death in Jerusalem, but he's doing it because he's denying himself for you and for me. Then you have James and John. They're pursuing greatness by self-promotion, by stepping over the other disciples, by trying to step on the other disciples. They're using manipulation. They were even trying to use their mother as a pawn. That's the way greatness is achieved. Now the question is, which path Self-promotion or self-denial leads to true greatness. The answer here comes next in the text. Jesus explains the path to greatness in God's kingdom is found by walking in his footsteps. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The apostles, at this point, are used to greatness by self-promotion, by elevating themselves over other people. That's what they've seen by the tyrants around them, the despots around them, by the Roman rulers, by Pilate. That's what they've seen by the Jewish leaders trying to pursue greatness by self-promotion. But Jesus says, greatness in his kingdom is not, by, not found by elevating yourselves over others. It's found by lowering yourselves and humbly serving others. In God's kingdom, the greatest position is not found by those who have the most power over people, but it's found by those who are humble and place themselves under people to serve them. Greatness before God is not how many people you can get in front of, but greatness before God is how can you be humble 
and serve other people. Just like Jesus did for you and for me. In fact, Jesus says, greatness is found in being a servant. That word servant literally means to be a table waiter. Like when you go to a restaurant, you serve people. That's what greatness looks like. Jesus says, greatness is not the one being served at the table, but greatness is found being in the waiter who serves others and brings things that they need. Then he says, you want to move beyond what greatness has found? Why greatness is found to be a servant? You want to know what absolute first place looks like? It's not being a servant. It's being a slave. A slave to who? A slave to all. You see, a servant gets paid for what they do. Does a slave get paid for what they do? Absolutely not. But a slave serves a master. But imagine what it meant to be a slave to every single person. That, he says, is where absolute first place is found in my kingdom. Being a slave and a servant of all. And Jesus says, you want to know what that looks like? You want to know how you can have a model that you can follow? Look at me. And that's the 45th verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My friends, this is the gospel message. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. You've been with us through the study. You know that that's actually a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where it says in that chapter that one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and God the Father gives this Son of Man the right to rule over all kingdoms, over all authority, and he is given all power. He is given the highest place in the universe as the Son of Man. But what does this person who is in the highest place of the universe do? He doesn't come to make servants. He comes to be a servant. He says he comes to give his life as a ransom. The word ransom is the Greek word lutron. It's actually a very neat word. It means the price paid to free someone from prison or to free someone from slavery. It's what you would pay to get somebody out of prison. That's what Jesus came to do. And in the warp and the woof of Scripture, we know that we are prisoners. We're slaves to sin. We owe a debt to God for our sin. And the highest person in the universe, the Son of Man, came to serve us by paying the price for our sin. That's what he came to do. It says this in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 
So we have the highest king of the universe, the Son of Man, comes to serve us, to pay the ransom price for our sin. Paul summarizes it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, in being born in the likeness of men, in being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus pursued greatness by self-denial, dying on the cross, and as a result, God the Father gave him the highest, most exalted position in the universe. And he set a path for you and for me to follow. That when we pursue greatness by self-denial, God the Father will reward us in Christ's kingdom for how we serve others. So here are the two takeaways I have for you in the conclusion. Number one, the path to true greatness is found in denying ourselves and serving others, just as Jesus denied himself and served us. Secondly, the more we are willing to deny ourselves to serve others for the kingdom, the greater our rewards will be in the kingdom. That's what we found with Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and Paul says it again in Philippians chapter 2. So this week, let me give you some direct application. It's Thanksgiving. Who's going to be denying themselves most and serving others most likely? She's in the kitchen, right? She'll be cooking a turkey dinner. Maybe it's not the wife, maybe it's not the mom, but whoever's in the kitchen is obviously the one doing the most self-denial and serving others. Guys and the rest of you, after dinner, don't just watch TV. Get some of that reward for yourself. Do the dishes. By the way, that challenge is obviously sort of fun, but the truth is, the greatness is found through self-denial and serving others every day of our life, not just on Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for reframing what greatness looked like. Thank you we know that greatness is not through self-promotion that we see on the news every day. As people Twitter and they tweet and they Snapchat and they Instagram trying to get themselves in front of others. That's not greatness. But Jesus, you have given us a pattern to follow. The true greatness is found in self-denial and in serving you by serving others. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us uh, such an, a model of greatness by denying yourself to the point that you even gave up your life to serve us and to save us. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.